Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. We have your Bibles. Let's open them up. We're going to pick up where we left off. It's been a few weeks. I have missed you. Good to be here, and thank you for your praying for me and praying for all the others who have been down. But it is good to be back. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So as you're turning there, briefly recapping what we've covered a few weeks ago in the first 11 verses of the 7th chapter, we saw that without denying the seriousness of the idea that marriage is intended by God to be a lifelong commitment, Paul also acknowledges the reality of our very sin-infested world knowing that even the healthiest of marriages can be damaged by all kinds of things that go on in this sin-infested world, making the idea of lifelong a challenging task. Some marriages become so hurt and damaged that the commitment is not always upheld, and so therefore, as we all are very aware of, well aware of, divorce happens. The terms separate and divorce, as we talked about a few weeks ago, were not distinguished in the first century in Paul's day like they are now. Back in that time, to separate was to divorce. And so Paul strongly encourages the believers not to go down the path of divorce, if at all possible, um, but to work it out, to, to be reconciled, keeping in mind that there is no perfect marriage just imperfect people who are hopefully trusting in a perfect God to see them through. So, and Paul also highlighted the fact that both singleness and marriage are gifts from the Lord with advantages and disadvantages to each. And from his perspective, the advantage is that it's a gift from God and that either way, there is to be, it is to be seen in a single life or even in a married life, an opportunity to either as a single person or as a team, as a married couple, to serve God still, no matter what. That is, that is the heartbeat of Paul's heart, isn't it? As he has got that from God. And so he continues to pass it on to the people in Corinth and to us as well. And so Paul encourages us to thank God for what we do have, don't get worried and upset and focused on, on what we do not have, but to remain focused on serving him wherever we find ourselves in life, whatever our situation. Now, as we pick it up at verse 12, he's going to deal, the apostle Paul is going to deal with the next issue or the next question, if you will. And he begins to address that beginning at verse 12, as we said, and that really it's the, the idea here in the subject is believers who are married to unbelievers. And he, by what we read, obviously the question that he's dealing with is, can a believer leave an unbeliever? So let's look at verses 12 and 13 to start off with, okay? So he says, to the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not 
divorce him. In contrast to with what he has previously said, Paul states that his teaching is his own here and not something that the Lord has taught. And that's all he really is mean that. He is in no way suggesting that this is just my idea. It's just, you know, I'm shooting from the hip here and uh, there's no inspiration at all. It is not at all what he is saying. As the apostle Paul, he, he is speaking on behalf of the Lord. He is just simply saying that as far as he knew, while Jesus was on earth, he did not teach, have anything to say with regards to believers married to unbelievers. So Paul is speaking from that place, okay? And once again, just as inspired as ever, speaking on behalf of the Lord, okay? So that's what he means here. Some of the people in the Corinthian church had become followers of Christ after they had been married. So when they first got married, none of them are believers. They, one of them, you know, comes to, to salvation in Jesus Christ, and now they are in a divided home in that sense, okay? And so no doubt some of these believers were having a difficult time at home. And so they ask Paul, hey, do we have to remain married <laughs> to an unsaved husband or wife? And doesn't our new conversion, our newfound faith and salvation kind of change things for us? And it's like without a moment of hesitation, Paul exhorts them, he encourages them to stay married to their unsaved spouses so long as, and as he says, so long as they are willing to stay with you and live with you in that situation. And that salvation does not alter the marriage state. In fact, Paul would be first to go on record saying, if anything, it should enhance, amen, the marriage situation, not detract from it, but add to it. We can make note here of something that Peter wrote, and he counsels wives with unsaved husbands in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the pure purity and reverence of your lives. Now, obviously, the spirit of that would work in an opposite situation, right? Speaking to the husband who may have an unsaved wife as well. We know from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, which we covered a few weeks ago, the marriage is just as much a physical relationship as it is a spiritual union. We saw in that verse where it says that they they shall become one flesh. So then that union can only be broken by a physical cause. Most of us are aware of these causes, adultery, and then, of course, death would be two such causes. Now, based on chapter 7, verse 39, which Paul writes, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In other words, he must be a believer. And then he would later write in another letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? 
And it should be considered, I think Paul is saying, by those verses, an act of obedience. Excuse me, an act of disobedience for a Christian to knowingly marry an unsaved person. But if a person becomes a Christian after marriage, he or she should not use that at that point as an excuse to break up the marriage just in order to avoid problems. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. In this verse, we find Paul emphasizing the fact that the Christian husband or wife could have, should have a spiritual influence on the unsaved spouse. The unbelieving spouse, Paul says, is sanctified, meaning placed in a unique relationship of blessing simply because of being married to a born-again believer. Think of it like this. Just as Laban's household was blessed because of Jacob being in it, Genesis 30, verse 27, and just as Potiphar's household in Egypt was blessed simply because Joseph was in it, Genesis 39, verse 5, so the unbeliever then is like blessed because of their born-again spouse. One great blessing is obvious. It's the unbeliever's exposure to the person and the message of Jesus Christ through the testimony and the witness of the believing husband or wife, keeping open the possibility of salvation. The term sanctified that is being used here, as most of us are aware of, signifies being made special or set apart for God's use and purposes. In this sense, it does not mean that these unbelievers were all of a sudden somehow redeemed or justified in Christ. If they had been saved, and if that's what is being said here, then Paul never would have referred to them as unbelievers. But they are, okay? So we need to understand that. And so for the sake of clarity, verse 14 does not teach that an unsaved spouse becomes automatically saved just because their spouse is, okay? It is not saying that. Since each person, Every single one of us must individually, had to have individually made our own decision for Christ. Amen? And that is still true here. Rather, it means that the believer exerts a spiritual influence in the home that can lead to the salvation of the lost marriage partner. This sanctification process is different in each marriage. Some unbelieving spouses will and do eventually come to salvation in Jesus Christ just because of their association with their believing spouses. Others will not respond to this influence. In the very least, however, these unbelievers come into contact 
with the gospel message in ways that they may not have otherwise ever come in contact with. Over the years, Marilyn and I have seen devoted followers of Christ live for him in divided homes and eventually saw their loved ones put their faith in Jesus Christ. And it is a wonderful, exciting, glorious thing to watch and behold when that takes place. Oh, but then we have this last part of verse 14. Whatever is, is Paul talking about? What, what about the children? Again, the emphasis is on the influence of the godly parent. Again, look at what it says, otherwise, meaning if it were not true that the unbelieving spouses are sanctified, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. What's, what's he talking about? In other words, it was inconceivable to Paul that the children of believers could be anything but holy in the eyes of God. We've got two categories, I think, being, being referred to here without it really being kind of clarified and mentioned. We have those children who are in the home who would, we would be what we would refer to as under the age of accountability. But then there would also be those children who are a little older, but still living at home. And Paul is simply saying the very same thing that applied to the adult spouse who was the unbeliever because of the influence that is to be exerted and used in the home. It very same emphasis is on the children. Okay. Now, obviously, if a child is under the age of accountability and unfortunately, tragically is lost and loses their life, we know where that child goes. But what is being said here, here is those who are a little older, but still living home, a teenager, let's say, or a young adult still at home, still under the influence of that godly parent, then they are sanctified in that sense simply because of the influence that remains there. And the same thing applies. Should the godly parent decide that they've had enough, don't want to deal with the unbelieving spouse, left, then that would remove the covering, if you would, the blessing, the influence of a godly parent. And so it's that very same thing that is being applied here, okay? The apostles' words are no doubt based on teaching that is not only found in the Old Testament, but in the New as well. Children of believers are special in God's eyes, even though they are not redeemed, referring to the older ones now. The term holy that is used is the very same word as sanctified that he used earlier in the verse, coming from the same word, meaning the same thing, okay? These children are not necessarily believers, as we understood it with regards to adults, but they are coming under the blessing and the covenant relationship which their believing parent enjoys with their God. Salvation does not change the marriage state. If a husband or wife becoming a follower of Christ annulled the marriage somehow, then the children, and what Paul is saying here, in the home, Paul says, would become, look at the word he uses, unclean. Meaning if the believing parent were to leave the home, as I said a moment ago, it would remove the influence of godly testimony. Instead, by remaining, these children may one day be saved themselves. 
okay? As the spirit, as the believing parent remains faithful to the Lord in the place that they have been placed by him. But then we have another situation. What if the unbelieving spouse decides and chooses not to stay and leave? Verse 15 answers and deals with that question. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Clearly, Paul valued a believer's faithfulness to the marriage. But he also knew that in our fallen world, unbelieving spouses don't always endure and stay in the marriage. And what happens when the non-Christian spouse chooses to leave, even if it is against the believing spouse's wishes? Paul considers the flip side of the believer married to the unbeliever situation here? What if the non-believing spouse is not at all happy that their husband or wife has defected to some strange new religion like Christianity, which really would have been the case in the first century Corinth, okay? And he wants to end the marriage by divorcing, doesn't want anything to do with it. And perhaps even he or she was not at all understanding and was, in fact, quite hostile toward the believing spouse. But then Paul saw no advantage for a Christian to remain in such a volatile environment. And as long as it was the unbelieving spouse who was initiating this action, and especially if one finds himself in harm's way. Marilyn and I have never, ever encouraged and counseled somebody who was being abused or in some serious uh, danger to stay in a marriage of that type. And I think Paul is basically laying that out for us. It appears that Paul realizes the reality of this possibility, which would mean one of two things in this case, and it would still apply today. Either the believer would have to deny their faith in Jesus Christ in order to maintain the marriage or maintain faith in Christ, and let the marriage end. As difficult as it might be, and as much as marriage is ordained and sanctified by God, the high calling of God with regards to salvation must not ever be denied for any reason whatsoever. So the believer is to let the unbeliever go. When a divorce happens for this reason, Paul says, the believing brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances, referring to God's law concerning divorce. Bible scholars and commentators suggest that this might possibly be the second exception to remarriage, along with adultery, Death is obviously not included in this as Jesus taught in Matthew 5 and 19. That's a given. Death would be the given. So in other words, this passage is seen as being supportive of the idea that desertion is a legitimate ground for divorce. Since one who fails 
to provide for their family, Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.8, denies the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, that certainly would have been the case in first century Corinth where it would have been more likely the wife who had become the believer and the husband not so much. So then the child of God is no longer bound to that marriage relationship. Well, Paul does not specifically say one way or the other. Scholars see this falling into the category of the unmarried person that Paul talked about back in verse 8. Free to marry, but to a fellow believer. And we saw that again in verse 39. But urged to remain single for the sake of undistracted ministry to Jesus Christ. Another reason to not block the divorce Paul mentions here is that God has called us to live in peace, a situation that would be impossible in a home where the unbeliever was acting in a way that was, as we said a moment ago, hostile toward the believer. We are called to peace. And Paul he wrote that again to the Romans in chapter 12, verse 18. Hear me now, folks. However, that being said, we are not to use the argument of peace as some kind of loophole or excuse to walk out of a marriage simply because we feel that is a little less than perfect. Short of the reasons given earlier, adultery, physical abuse, or desertion, even if your marriage is tough, Paul says in his word to all of us, is to stay and to trust him through that whole situation. Far too many marriages, I believe, today break up due to a failure to take into account the full counsel of God. Any, anybody would have no problem running around somewhere and finding some counselor to agree with you. But that is not taking into account the full counsel of God. And that's what Paul is all about. Look at verse 16 with me now. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? We are prone to think that a change in circumstance is always the answer to a problem. Don't we? Yeah. But the problem is usually within us and not around us. <laughs> Someone has wisely said that the heart of every problem is the problem in the heart. I have watched over the years, couples go through divorce, seek happiness in new relationships only to discover that they carried with them <laughs> problems from a previous relationship. And we call those problems today, we refer to them often as baggage, don't we? Yeah. You see, you never know what the next year or the next month or the next day holds in Christ Jesus, folks. Stick with the calling of God for your life, whatever 
that may be, if at all possible. So Paul encourages, having said that with no um, surprise to us, stay where you are. Look at verse 17. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them. Just as God has called them, this is the rule I laid down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? And he should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. And then I love these words. They should be highlighted, underlined in your Bible. And if they're not, do it. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Let me hear you say that. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. <laughs> On the surface, it seems as though Paul is changing topics. Going from marriage to the issue of circumcision as it related to the Jews and Gentiles and even slavery. Actually, he is not changing topics, he's expanding on what he's been talking about, reinforcing the idea of staying where you are. The principle that Paul laid down was this. Even though Christians are all one in Christ, each believer should remain in the same calling he or she was in when the Lord saved them. In other words, Jewish believers should not try to become Gentiles by undoing the covenant mark on them and by erasing that physical mark. And Gentiles should not try to become Jews by being circumcised. Slaves should not demand freedom from their masters or try escaping just because of their newfound freedom and salvation and equality in Christ. In fact, Paul qualifies the, the, this, this idea here in the next few verses. Verse 21, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord free person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is now Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Implied but not stated, you are not your own. Remember that? From chapter 6. What is repeated from chapter 6, verse 24? You were bought at a price. Paul wants them, he wants us to understand that wherever the situation, whatever the situation, 
the newfound equality that comes with salvation in Christ means that they are not to think of themselves as trapped in those situations any longer, but are instead free. Even if they are a slave in the first century working for somebody else, they're free. And even that master who come to know Jesus Christ, who's the free person, now is a slave to Jesus. We're all in that together. You are instead free. He says you've got to make the adjustments in your head and in your heart. Not so much free to leave, but free, hear me now, from unhealthy, selfish attitudes that would keep us bound within from thinking wrong kind of thoughts, feeling sorry for ourselves, being selfish with our ideas and mindsets and attitudes, free from that, free to remain free, <laughs> free to thrive, free to be used by God to expand the gospel and his kingdom. And that meant having a whole new transformed, liberated outlook on life. Free, basically, church, from ourselves. In verse 24, Paul repeated what he said in verse 17 for emphasis. And because he had said this was his rule for all the churches, the believers should continue on as they were when God called them. This refers to the examples that he has just talked about, such as marriage, and circumcision or uncircumcision, job, station in life, slave or free. It is important to remember that Paul did not command that a believer could never change their status. We want to understand that. He told us that back in verse 6. He is saying that they should seek to know how God has called them. What is his purpose for their life? His will for them. That that is what matters. And be faithful to that calling. Because doing what God commands is what counts. Initially, the only change that God requires, folks, is the change he wants to do within. Amen? Yeah. Amazingly, when this is allowed, when we submit to him, what we find is what he talked about in verse 15, peace and joy in this situation and the place that we have been divinely placed by our God recognizing that where we were when God called us is very likely where he intends to use us. Someone has wisely said, you've heard this before, bloom wherever you're planted for his glory. This was certainly true for a lady named Leslie who gave her life to Christ, but she was married to a um, staunch professing atheist. Things weren't easy, but she hung in there, trusting God and living out 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And then eventually, 
through his own research, trying to disprove God and the loving spirit and testimony and influence that she provided in the home, her husband eventually came around, gave his life to Jesus Christ. You see, if Leslie had given up, she had quit on the marriage. Her husband, whose name was Lee Strobel, would have never come to know Jesus Christ, probably. Which means he probably then would have never written a book called Case for Christ, whom many, that book has been instrumental in many coming to salvation in Jesus. And you want to know a little bit more? Talking about his regards with regards to the children could be that their son, who today now is a professor at Talbot Theological Seminary, may not have ever done that as well. God is faithful, church. You see, I think it comes down to this, and it might be arguable, that our number one problem is ourselves, our self-centeredness. It has become so much a part of our life, we recognize it as the norm, and anything else is like weird and to be avoided. We are so accustomed to calling our own shots, having it our own way, listening to our counsel rather than God's. Self-centeredness has destroyed more friendships, marriages, churches, you name it, than anything. Folks, you've heard me say time and time again how important it is that we get over ourselves. And while Paul has covered a lot of ground in this seventh chapter, and it has mostly been with regards to the whole marriage context, along with singleness, the bottom line for Paul here is this. Get over yourself. Stop making this about you. This is not about having it your way, your will, making your own decisions. The Bible tells us in all our ways, acknowledge him. The idea is not only in all our ways, but all the time, acknowledging God in our lives, seeking him, his counsel, and desiring to bring him pleasure over ourselves, to do his will over and against our own. Do it his way, church. Now more than ever, does the world need to see people living in such a way? Would you agree with that? Let it begin with us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and once again, you have hopefully spoken to our hearts. Maybe even in some cases brought conviction. And like I like to say, that conviction is, is our friend. <laughs> it is not something to be avoided or excused and pushed away. Conviction comes because of your Holy Spirit. May we be mindful that when we push back conviction, we're actually pushing you back, God. May that not be the case. 
But may we open our lives to you, our hearts to you, our total beings to you, and say, God, come. May we come to the place we, where we are completely tired of living for ourselves. Completely tired of spending most of our day hardly acknowledging you. God, may that be changed. May that be reversed. And Lord, may we get over ourselves, deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow you, Lord, wherever you lead. By our acknowledging you, beginning our day that way, and remaining in that for the rest of the entire day and for the rest of our entire lives. God, may it be your way, your will, and not our own. Even if it means something uncomfortable. Even if it requires some sacrifice on our part. May it be so, God. May our longing and may our desire be to bring you pleasure and honor through our lives. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up.